All right, I invite you to open your Bibles today as we go to Luke chapter 11. We spent a lot of time on the Lord's Prayer. I hope it was encouraging. It was to me. I hope it was to you. And today, we're going to talk about well, a couple sermons anyway for the chapter 11 on empty religion or empty spirituality. So let me start off this way. As we think about Luke 11, let's set the tone like this. Things that have the appearance of death, depth can often prove to be very shallow. Things that appear on the surface to be very deep can often be very shallow. So let me take you to a scene on the beach. A family is at the beach. There's two siblings. Maybe they're 10 and 12 years old. They're just dying to go in the water. But the mother's a little bit nervous. She doesn't know if the kids can really swim that well with the tide. And so they get into this negotiation process that every parent's been in with their children or grandchildren at one point or another. Mom says no, kids say yes, the negotiation starts, and finally they end on this. She says, okay, you can go, but you can only go up to your waist. As soon as it goes over your waist, you have to come back in so that it's back, you know, under your waist again. And she figures that's a pretty safe bet because it's not like the tide's going to sweep them away when it's only knee deep. And so the kids say, sure, Mom, and they head off into the water. And there they are, you know, about five feet out, and it's still up to their ankles. And they go about 25 feet out. And it's still below their knees. And they go out about 50 feet. And now it's only up to their knees. The children are laughing and kind of kicking the... They don't even realize how far they're out. They're 100 yards out. And it's only thigh deep. And by this point, mom is on the breach, you know, kind of, Hey, get back, get back. You know, they're so far out. Will they ever be up to their waist? And of course, they go a little bit further in. Lo and behold, mom's getting real nervous because she can see that it's actually becoming shallower out there. Now, if you know anything about the beach, and I think you know what's happening here, they're at a beach where it's probably low tide, and the kids are walking on a sandbar. When you look out into the ocean, it looks so deep, and it is deep in many places, but there are some places where it's very shallow, and that's what Luke is describing in chapter 11. A spirituality that on the surface of it, like when you look at the ocean, on the surface of it, looks very deep. But if you just go below the surface, you realize how shallow things can really be. And that's the concern that Jesus has in this chapter that Luke communicates. Luke is going to mark out today for us three things that appear to be very deep, but we have to be careful because they can actually, we can actually be very shallow and still have these. Number one, momentary enthusiasm. We'll get to this one in a few minutes, empty repentance. And finally, later on, I want to talk about misplaced priorities. So let's start with the first one here, momentary enthusiasm. Now, story starts in chapter 11, verse 14. Now, when he was casting out a demon that was mute, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Now, that sounds pretty good to me. Jesus cast out a demon that was mute. It's not that every time Jesus casts out a demon, there's mute or something like that. But this time, that's the case. He casts out a demon. It says the people were amazed. I mean, they're they're marveling. That's what the old King James says. They're talking. There's like a buzz going on in the crowd. Did you see that? What do you think happened there? There's something really positive taking place. It's a good sign. Now, you have to bear in mind that the people are starting to wonder, is Jesus the one that God has sent to redeem us and Israel? And this is a sign that seems to point in that direction, and that's why there's such a buzz. But as life has it, along comes a bunch of cynical people that destroy the faith. 
Verse 15, some of them said, he cast out demon by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking a sign from heaven. What does it mean they kept seeking a sign from heaven? That means nothing is going to make them happy. Nothing is going to satisfy them. Jesus had cast out 15 more demons. He could literally put a sign in heaven, and they're still not going to be satisfied because belief and unbelief is not a matter of the head. It's a matter of the heart. Luke understands that, and that's why he writes this little line in. Now, I just want to pause right here for a minute to appreciate what's happening. I think there's a really good lesson for us here in, you know, modern day, in the modern day West, and it's this. Never let anybody throw water on your fire. Because that's what's happening in the passage here. Anytime you start to make movement towards God and you start to show excitement about who Jesus is, there'll always be someone to put a stick in your spokes. There'll always be someone to put their foot out and kind of try to trip you up. Our world is full of cynical people. And I would go even a step further and say, there's more cynical people in the world today maybe than there's ever been. Postmodernism, the philosophy in the air that we're all breathing, that just seems, seems to be a greenhouse for cynicism. And just to try to, postmodernism can tear things down, but it doesn't know how to build things up. That's the problem with postmodernism. Not to get too heady with you, but postmodernism is like radiation. It kills off the bad cells. The problem is it kills off all the cells. See, that's the issue. And what we have here in the West is the same thing they had in Jesus' day. They're cynical people. There's people that are standing around and they just want to kind of destroy the faith that's in other people. The crowd is amazed. There's a buzz about them. And then the people got to come in the middle of that and go, I think he did it by the power of Beelzebub. Die, he's not showing us enough signs. These are cynical people that are trying to tear down the faith of those that are trying to make movement towards God. Anytime you try to make movement towards God, there will always be cynical people around that just try to pull us back and pull us away from God. There's a passage, of course, with Simon Peter, right? Simon is one of the leader of the 12. And there's a place where Satan's going to attack Simon personally. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. Why is Simon picked out of the 12? Probably because he's the leader of the 12. Anytime we start to make progress towards God, There's always cynicism that can kind of pull us down. We live in a world of skeptical people, cynical people. I think it's very good to interact with people. I do this for a living. But you have to be careful not to let people throw water on your fire. Because that's constantly what happens. Why do you pray? Why would you pray if God already knows what's going to happen? Why would you stay married to your spouse when you can probably do better? Go to church. Why would you go to church? I got better things that I can do with my time. Anytime you start to make spiritual progress, you start to move towards God, you may even have names, faces flipping through your mind right now. There's always someone to throw the stick in your spokes. That's kind of an 80s thing, isn't it? Stick in the spokes. I don't know if anybody knows what that means today. Riding a bike, thank you. Stick in the spokes. Maybe it was just my neighborhood. You know, you know what comes to mind for me is... When the 12 spies go into the land, this should be a moment of excitement. Like like they come back and everybody should rejoice because we are about to go do what God has called us to do. And Joshua and Caleb come back with this message of, hey, there's some challenges there, but our God is bigger than all of them. 
But 10 of those spies, what do they do? They throw water on the fire. And for that, the whole nation's going to wander in the wilderness for a generation. We have to be careful not to let the world throw water on the fire of the church. Not to let the world throw water on your own personal fire. Sometimes that happens right in your home. Where you're really excited about God. You love what God's doing in your life. But you're not in a home that's very supportive about that. And you have to find ways for people in your own family not to throw water and be cynical. And so we have to guard our hearts against that kind of thing. Never let anybody throw water on your fire. That's the problem here. So some say, ah, he's doing it by the power of Beelzebub. Jesus answers them with a fourfold answer. We can touch on this real quick. Number one, verse 17, he says, that would be counterproductive. I mean, why would I expel all these demons? And, you know, that would be counterproductive to the mission of Satan. In other words, Jesus says, if I'm going to go in disguise, you know, in disguise, I'm actually a demon in disguise, obviously I'm not going to expel this many demons. That would be illogical. Number two, their own disciples do this. There's Jewish exorcists that have been doing this probably for a century. Josephus chases the Jewish exorcist all the way back to Solomon's day. You know, in the Old Testament says Solomon is the wisest man. I, don't, I think this is more uh, uh, fanciful, but it's still historical in the sense that there were people in Solomon's day, Josephus said, that started trying to do exorcisms because it was just a day of wisdom like that, and that carried on through the first century. So Jewish exorcists have been doing this for a long time. Jesus says, if I'm casting them out by the power of Satan, don't you think your friends are casting them out from the power of Satan too? It's just illogical. Number three, Jesus says, if I'm driving out demons, I'm doing it by the Spirit of God, he says, verse 20. And you have to realize this is the finger of God in your midst. Uh, The finger of God might be a reference to the Ten Commandments where he wrote on the tablet or something like like God is about to do something great. Don't you realize your cynicism is going to keep you from this glorious thing God is doing? And the last thing Jesus says, verse 21 through 22, I just point this out. The exorcism shows that he has bound Satan. And that's what that little parable means. Jesus has defeated the strong man. He's bound him. He's tied him up so he can plunder his possessions. In other words, Jesus has defeated Satan so that he can now unblind the people that have been blinded by Satan for so long. So this nonsense about Jesus doing casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, Jesus, that's just silly. So again, here's the main point that I want to circle back to, and it's this. Jesus is realizing that people have a veneer of enthusiasm. There's excitement, but that excitement flares out like a shooting star. And that's why Jesus says, verse 23, Whoever is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. There's a whole group of people that are like shooting stars. In verse 14, they're all excited about Jesus. They're starting to talk about this might be the Messiah. And yet they've allowed the cynical people to throw water on their fire. Jesus realizes this is superficial. This is a veneer. It's very empty enthusiasm. Whoever is not with me is against me. If you're not gathering, you're scattering, Jesus says. Enthusiasm can be a very poor substitute for faith. This is a theme, by the way, in John's gospel. If you read John's gospel cover to cover, there's a theme that goes through that people get very enthusiastic, and Jesus says he knows their hearts. Like, remember the wedding feast at Cana? They get all excited about Jesus turning water into wine, 
But it says Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. John chapter 6, they're following Jesus and he's feeding them. That's the feeding of the 5,000. He gives them bread and fish. It's a really exciting thing. There's a big buzz about Jesus. But then he looks at the crowd with all the enthusiasm on their face and he says, you only follow me because I give you bread. He even looks at Peter and says, you're going to walk away too? He's realizing the empty enthusiasm they have. In John chapter 8, right after the woman taken into adultery, it says that many people believed in him. But he said to them, if you abide, you are truly my disciples. In other words, and that's where he says, you are of your father the devil. What is Jesus saying? There's like empty enthusiasm going on. They get all excited about Jesus. If you look on the surface of the ocean, man, you'd say that's got to be 500 feet deep. Ah, but it's a sandbar, you see? The triumphal entry. That's where you really see it. What do you got, like 10,000 people following Jesus? They just saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They follow him all the way from Bethany to Jerusalem. He's about to go in. They're so excited. They're so enthusiastic. They're taking their jackets off and putting them on the ground. They throw Jesus on a donkey. He's going to ride into the city. That enthusiasm, that excitement, that astonishment, and that amazement. In just a couple days, they'll yell, crucify him crucify him you look at the triumphal entry and the enthusiasm that's there you'd swear it's a thousand feet deep this is going nowhere but just a couple days later you realize all the people are walking on a sandbar enthusiasm is good but we have to be careful it's not becoming a placebo for genuine christian maturity and growth because it can be like a shooting star a bright flash of light in the sky that fizzles out as it makes its way. This, by the way, I'll just, well, the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. And I will tell you, just like, you know, this is how I pastor the church. This is how I pastor myself. I'm not impressed, even in my own heart, with these bursts of enthusiasm. Like, I like them, you know? But I don't live on adrenaline Christianity, you know? I, I, I want to be 20 years, I, st- I want my faith to be grown. I don't want to be the guy that's really excited in 2021, and by 2030, you know, I'm not, my faith is, is so far from God. I want your faith this way. I, I want you to be excited right now, but I don't want to see the shooting star at Ridgefield Baptist. I don't want people to get all excited about who God is, only to fizzle away as the cynical and the skeptics and people move into their lives. We want to create the kind of foundation that creates the marathon runner, not just the sprint. We don't just want to get out of the blocks quick. I want to do this with our kids. I hope our kids have fun. I hope they like it. I hope when they play ball in the parking lot, they enjoy it. That's not the most important thing, though. The most important thing is that they're grounded and rooted in Christ so they can weather the storms that are going to come their way in this world. I want to see your kid walk with God at six years old, but guess what? I want to see him walk with God at 76 years old, too. It's not a marathon. It's, a, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Second thing I want us to see in this passage, real quick before we move on, that fleeting enthusiasm, that momentary enthusiasm, it's actually not helpful to the mission of Jesus. Jesus looks at this enthusiastic crowd. What does he say? He says, if you're not, if you're not with me, you're against me. And if you're not gathering, you're scattering. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, the scattering, gathering language, that's an illustration of a couple of things. It might be sheep, right? Gathering sheep or the sheep scatter. It could be harvest language. I don't know. It could be Jesus is saying, talk about harvesters taking things in, you know. Either way, Jesus is making the same point. He's making the point that if we're having momentary and flashes of enthusiasm, if we're doing the shooting star thing, that's not really helping the purpose of the gospel. Notice here, and this is, whoa, there's a whole sermon here I was thinking about doing, but I won't. Jesus is seeking people. That's really powerful, isn't it? What does it say? He wants to gather. I love that. That's the mission of Christianity. Jesus is gathering worshipers. I mean, in religion, people are looking for God. But in Christianity, God is seeking people. That's John chapter 4. Remember the woman at the well? Jesus says, the Father is seeking worshipers like this. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. That's the beauty of the Christian story. It's not people going to God. It's God coming to people. And we, as the church, we are on the mission of God. We are helping people discover who God is. We're bringing that message. That's what this passage teaches. If you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. To be on mission means to draw people to Christ that way, and live that kind of life. The people are oscillating. One minute they're like, Jesus, wow, he's something special. Well, maybe this guy's right over here. Maybe that's by the power of Satan. Well, that was really impressive over here. It's this oscillation, and Jesus just calls them on it. We want to be the kind of church, and you want to be the kind of Christian that, that, that lives a life of, of spiritual stability that, that points the direction people need to go. I read a story, an uh, imaginary story, I'm sure, about a boy in Washington. He lived in a really small town in, in Washington, the state. And uh, there was a well-known crossroads there. It was the only crossroads in this small town. Maybe about 200 people lived in the town. And it had a crossroad, two signs. This way to Spokane, you know, this way to Tacoma. And the boy sat there and he looked at the sign for a while and he thought to himself, everybody in the town, all the insiders know the way. You could take the signs down, it wouldn't really matter. They know if you want to go this way, it's Tacoma. If you want to go that way, it's Spokane. But then he thought about the thousands of people that will come at that crossroads over the course of the next year. And they need that sign to point them in the right direction. And then he mused to himself and said, how many people will go down the wrong road if I change this sign? The flashes of enthusiasm, where we're always back and forth and our faith is unstable, has the potential to confuse the signs and send people in the wrong direction. If you're not gathering with me, Jesus says, people are being scattered. If you're not with me, you're against me. He's calling people not to have this momentary flash of enthusiasm, but to be stable and grounded and steadfast in their faith. All right, number two is this, empty repentance. Verse 24 reads, When the unclean spirit has gone out of the person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So Jesus here tells a parable. It's a story. Uh, in the ancient world, it was thought that spirits would be out roaming in the desert. Jesus picks up on that here. 
Verse 24, there's an evil spirit that's cast out of a man, and he kind of wanders into the desert. Then he comes back. He can't find anywhere to rest. In the parable, there's nobody else to possess out there in the desert for whatever reason. So he comes back to the man that he originally possessed, and he founds a vacant house. This is, I think, squatter's language in some cultures, you know, where he comes back and the house is, the old King James says, swept and garnished. There's nothing in the house. There's nothing in this man's soul. The man has expelled evil, but he has not filled his life with good. And so the the demon comes back with seven more, and then he what? They dwell. That word dwell means permanent residence, by the way. Now, this doesn't have much to do with demon possession. It's a parable to make a greater point, and it's this. It's not enough to expel evil out of our lives. You have to fill your life with good. And you have to fill it with the Holy Spirit. It's a story about repentance, empty repentance. There is a danger here of what one writer calls the partial awakening, you know, where you expel bad things from your life, but we do it in a very kind of legalistic, moral way. We're not filling our lives with good. We're not filling our lives with Christ. Repentance is not just turning away from evil, it's turning towards God. There's a, there's a really good picture of this with the, with the Thessalonians. I don't know if you know this passage where Paul says they turned from God, uh, turned, excuse me, to God from idols. Listen to that. They didn't turn away from idols. They turned to God from idols. That's really good. To God from idols. There's a, uh, a, a G. Campbell Morgan tells a story about a scrub oak here in the United States. I love this picture he gives. G. Campbell Morgan is the pastor of the Westminster Pope in England from years ago. And he's, G. Campbell Morgan says he started to understand this passage when he came across the scrub oak in the United States. He said the scrub oak is not like the other trees. It doesn't lose its leaves. It doesn't lose its leaves in the fall. What happens is the new leaves start to grow and they push out the old leaves. That's how it gets new leaves. So it's not like your maple tree where the leaves fall down and new ones grow. It's like baby teeth or permanent teeth pushing baby teeth out, you know? It's a really nice picture G. Campbell Morgan gives us. He says that's how spiritual growth should be. As we repent and we turn away from things, we can't just kick evil out of our lives. You can't wake up one day and say, I'm not going to be angry anymore. Here's five ways I'm not going to be angry. And you can't say, well, I'm not going to be bitter anymore. I'm just going to go ask people's forgiveness. What you do is you leave a vacuum in your soul because you've expelled evil, but you have not filled it with the glory of God. You haven't filled it with good. There's a reason Paul says, be not drunk with wine, but be what? You know, filled with the Spirit. Don't just kick idolatry and bad habits out of your life. Fill it with the Spirit of God because you and I cannot be neutral. I had an old professor of mine from uh, years ago. He said something like, How do you, you probably heard, how do you get all the air out of this room? And of course, you know, Chuck, you know, oh, suck the air out, you know. <laughs> he says, No, you can't, you can't do that. The walls will cave in, it, you know, you got to have something in here. And of course, somebody else will raise their hand and say, Well, how about filling a room with water? And that's a good option, isn't it? That something has to be in the room. You can't just suck the air out of the room. Something has to be in our hearts. We're not neutral. We can't just suck the evil out. We can't just turn away from idols. You can't just, quote unquote, not be drunk with wine. There's got to be some filling of the spirit. And so the warning here is against empty repentance. Don't just kick things out of our life, but make sure we're, we're filling it 
with turning to God. Uh, I love this writer who said this. He said, the loveliest garden I ever saw was so full of flowers there was scarcely room for a weed to grow. It's pretty good. And may our lives be like that. So full of Christ that there is scarcely a place for evil to grow. I think Jesus is saying this to the woman at the well. And of course, the woman at the well, her, everybody has their own little idols to work with. Hers was the, the approval of people. Uh, in this case, men. She had a number of husbands. That's where she found value and significance. She felt like I'm a special person because I have all these people in my life. Jesus identifies that as an idol. And then he says something like, you know, um, turn, turn to the, the one who, where, where your well never runs dry. Inside of you will spring up this living water. What you have in that exchange with Jesus and the woman at the well, there's nowhere where she says, well, I'm just going to get rid of these bad relationships in my life. Rather, her life is now so full of who Christ is that the scrub oak, the new growth, has just pushed the old growth out. Look, let me give you a case study to end this one point. Let's take Marcus. Marcus is 30 years old. Marcus is a very angry person. He's a very bitter person. He wasn't always like that, but he's become very cynical as he's gotten older in life. A lot of bad things have happened to him. Marcus realizes how much this bitterness is holding him down. He realizes he's losing all his relationships. He's always angry at people. He has that, that tension in the neck, you know, that you walk around with when you're bitter and angry. And now he's going to turn over a leaf and he's going to be a new man. So what does Marcus do? Marcus just decides, I'm not going to be angry anymore. I'm not going to be bitter. Marcus, by the way, is making a very good decision, one that I'm very supportive of, and I hope you would be too. But it isn't long, just a couple of weeks, before Marcus is more angry than ever. And Marcus is more bitter than ever. That list keeps growing. Why? Marcus has done what the parable did. He's expelled the evil, and the evil came back sevenfold when it found the house swept and garnished. The Corinthians, the, uh, they, what did they do? The Thessalonians turned to God from idols. So important that we as a church do this. We're not just turning away from evil. We're filling our lives with God. We're filling our lives with the Holy Spirit. We're turning to God from the idols. Right, let me give you the last point. I, I do want to make sure we get to this. Verse 27, uh, misplaced priorities. As he was saying these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice. Uh, the general feeling I get on this passage of misplaced priorities, the woman raising her voice, is she's trying to break the tension. <laughs> you know? That's what I think is happening here. He's like talking about demons and evil, it returns sevenfold, and the woman's like, this is really tense. So what did she do? She raises her voice and says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you were nursed. Yeah. Uh, modern day Americans were like, whoa, <laughs> that, is really, that is really out there, isn't it? This would make complete sense in the first century, but this is TMI here in the 21st century. Jesus says, blessed rather are those that hear the word of God and keep it. What exactly is the woman saying? What the woman is doing is she is echoing the priorities and the values of the first century. In the first century, everything, of course, ran by shame and honor. And, and you basically identified with your children or your parents it's a really unusual thing for us to, to relate to today, but what she's basically saying is, ah, if I had a child like you, my life would be perfect. My life would be, be worth living. 
the woman here, if you remember back to the birth wars, you heard of Star Wars, you want birth wars? That's Rachel and Leah in Genesis where they go back and forth and one's going to have more babies than the other. That's the kind of stuff of the first century, at least the ancient world. The woman is saying, if only I had a son like you. Jesus here is going to correct her priorities. But he doesn't do it in a very harsh way. He's actually very gentle. You notice what he says? He looks at the woman and says, blessed rather. In other words, that's okay, but I got something way more important for you. Blessed rather are those that hear the word of God and obey. It's a gentle correction. In her world, the most important thing can, you can have is like a successful child. An eloquent rabbi is a son. Jesus says that's pretty good, but that's really not the most important thing. What she's assuming is that God shares her own cultural priorities, and that's a mistake. This is where I think Augustine has helped me a ton. Augustine said this. He said, the essence of sin is disordered loves. In other words, the problem is usually not that you love something. It's that you love something out of order. It's okay to love your work. If you don't love your work, I don't know, maybe think about long-term change. It's good. It's okay to love a hobby. It's certainly okay to love a hobby. But it's not okay to love those things above your family. It's okay to love your spouse. It's good to love your spouse. Jesus says it's okay to love your parents. But Jesus says, don't love your parents above God. See, sin, Augustine says, is misplaced or disordered loves. That's what sin is. You have to have the order correct. It's good to love baseball. It's not good to love baseball more than your son. It's good to love your job, but don't love your job more than people because then you'll take advantage of people. And it's good to love people, but don't love them more than God because then you're going to treat them like objects in the end. And so these are disordered loves. Love the Lord thy God with all your mind, all your heart, all your soul, right? And your neighbor as yourself. So Augustine is saying, there's a lot of good things that you can love, but make sure you have the right priorities. That seems to be what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are your, is your mother. Boy, if I had a son like you, Jesus says, I get what you're saying, but that's not the highest love you can have. The highest love you can have is hear the word of God and obey the word of God. God's priorities are going to differ from the priorities of this world. We tend to think that God values the things we value. You ever been to a family tag sale? I bet you've seen this. I remember when a very loved family member of mine, they had this little thing they wanted to put in our tag sale, and they marked it with some absurd price. And I'm like, what do you, nobody's going to buy that for like 50 bucks, you know? And they're like, this was my mom's. I'm like, yeah, but it wasn't their mom's. <laughs> you know, they're not going to buy this thing. I was embarrassed to have that in my tag sale. That's the first thing they're going to see, and they're not going to buy my candles over here or something like that, you know? That we assume that other people place the same value on things that we do. And even worse than that, I think we assume that God places the same value on things that we do. What is God's value? God's value is here. And follow his will. Blessed rather are those that hear the word of God and, this is important, keep it. I once read a story, a apocryphal story, about a, uh, a boss of a company. He had about 14 employees, 15. He's going to go off for a long time. He says, I'm going to go off, but I'm going to send you letters. And I'll send you these letters, and I'm just going to tell you how to run the company. So he goes off, and he sends letters, you know, one or two a week. And, and they get the letters, and 
He comes back after a couple of years and everything is in chaos. There's weeds growing up on the flower beds. They're fooling around there on the showroom floor. The paperwork is a mess. And he says, didn't you read the letters? And they said, we did more than read the letters. We bound them and put them in a book. (laughs) And we memorized them. And we opened them and taught them to our kids at home. We even had letter day every Sunday. And I think you can know where I'm going with this story. (laughs) What did they do? They read them, but they didn't keep the word. Jesus says, blessed are you that hear it and keep it. As we step back, and we'll close with this, we look out into the ocean and we see how deep sometimes things look. We want to make sure that we're not walking on a sandbar. We want to cultivate that relationship with God deep in our hearts, be the kind of people he's redeemed us to be. Father, thank you for your grace and your love. We are no longer slaves to ourselves. We are no longer slaves to the evil of this world. We now belong to you. Bless us as we close in song. In Jesus' name, amen.